So, good evening, everyone. Great to see see you all today. And it's been very sweet meeting individually with people and just hearing about how the retreat is going. Just so many ups and downs on retreats, you know. <laughs> it's, it's always amazing. We go on retreat with you, you know. We ride the waves, you know. So it's a, a mutual learning here, right? It's not like it's top down. <laughs> it's not really like that. <laughs> We're all just uh, growing together. So I was thinking more about essential dharma and what is another key piece, you know, as we've been kind of laying out all the teachings and the, you know, it's not all of them, it's a piece of them, but some of the most essential ones, you know, this different talks and you know, what tonight I really wanted to focus on this quality of mind, of equanimity, and to kind of talk about how to cultivate it, why it's so important. As the more I reflect on it, and my own experience in the last couple of years, it's really a huge foundation for our practice and our life. So I want to talk about inner equanimity, and also I'm sure some of you have thoughts about going home, like, you know, <laughs> how am I going to live like this? At my house, right? That's a, <laughs> most people, their fear about going home uh, at times comes because they go, oh no, my life is nothing like this. You know, I'm five roommates and you know, we play drinking games in the wee hours of the night or whatever. <laughs> you know, we come on retreats different, you know? We're, we're a yogi. There's a lot of compartmentalizing, right? That's okay. You know, that, it's like that in the beginning a lot in the first few years, you know, until we, we really see that the, they come together, right? We're like, ah, oh, the outer and the inner, they start to, they start to merge, they dance together. And uh, our practice becomes an expression of our life, you know. Our life reflects our practice and our values and the wisdom that we have um, gotten for ourselves, you know, that we, we have seen that the faith, the unshakable faith that Mark was talking about, right? So equanimity um, is just such a key ingredient into all of this, this kind of non-reactivity. And I was thinking about um, Ajahn Chah, uh, you know, the Thai forest master who is Jack's teacher and teacher to many, you know, uh, Guy Armstrong and others who have come and Ajahn Samedo, uh, this one of our sort of grandfather Western monks, you know, he's been in robes for so long. I don't even, since he was in his 20s and he's about, I don't know, he might be 75. Anyway, he, um, he uh, Ajahn Chah, Jack tells a lot of stories about Ajahn Chah and writes about Ajahn Chah and his experience living with him for six years in Thailand. And one of the things he would talk about was this huge this great equanimity that Ajahn Chah had, right? This really profound equanimity. I mean, basically, if you really think about it, he was basically sitting out on a deck in the forest, and this whole community (laughs) emerged around him, and he's just kind of giving teachings and very relaxed away. And it's it's kind of amazing, but one time uh, there's a story, it might be in one of the books too, but uh, Jack was telling a story about how he, him and Ajahn Chah were in a pickup truck and they were going from his monastery, Ajahn Chah's monastery, to another monastery. 
And they had one of those drivers who was basically driving like 150 miles an hour in the mountains around tiny curves. Have you ever traveled in Asia? You kind of, <laughs> you, you've had a, if you haven't had one almost near death where you just took refuge and was like, oh my God, this bus driver is totally out of control. I think it's some kind of like fear factor thing or something. But anyway, so they were going along and it was really you know, Jack was gripping this, you know, the little, you know, they were in the front. And then when they got into the village, or like the, the monastery, Ajahn Chah turned to him and said, it was uncertain, wasn't it? <laughs> and Jack was like shaking, you know, touching the ground, like, oh, Yeah. But everything is uncertain, isn't it? You know, that's kind of what the Buddha is always saying, you know? Everything is uncertain, right? So equanimity is one of those sublime emotions. It's, it's the ground for wisdom, actually. It's the ground, and it's the protector of compassion. And love... And while some may think that equanimity is very dry, you know, the word itself doesn't, I'm not sure if it's the, I don't know, something, we don't use that word. I'm equanimous today. You know, it's not something that comes out in our lingo, right? We might say chilled out or something. But um, it's not dry aloofness, actually, when it's truly cultivated. It's, um, it produces a radiance and a warmth. Right? It's able to be with the ups and downs of life. It's, it's clarity. It's wisdom. The Buddha described a mind filled with equanimity as abundant, exalted, immeasurable, without hostility and ill will. So this quality. And the Pali word uh, is translated as uh, upeka, which really means to look over. To look over, it refers to the equanimity that arises from the power to, of our observation to see without being caught by what we see. Right? That's the key. We don't, get, we don't get caught up. And when this quality is well-developed, it can lead to a great sense of peace, a really, really deep peace kind of like the natural great peace that we've been referring to and reading in Nyosha Ken Rinpoche's poem. So, um, you know, in the Dhammapada, here's what the Buddha said about equanimity. There are those who discover that they can leave behind the destructive reactions and become patient as the earth, unmoved by the fires of anger or fear, unshaken as a pillar, unperturbed as a clear and quiet pool. And so, that's something I think is a really beautiful aspiration, to, to sort of have an unshakable mind. You know, a lot of us, we spend so much time, I know the last few years, I, I really called on this quality a lot, because the constant reactivity was exhausting. You notice that even here, huh? Like, oh, this way, and then this, the pendulum swings, and these huge swings, right? Morning, we're like, yes, 
it's all great. We run out of here, and then the afternoon, oh my God, this is the worst thing that ever happened. And I, it's never going to end. And then it changes. And then it changes. And we always feel like, well, what is it going to be? You know. And at some point, I think what happens is the equanimity, we come into the middle. The pendulum starts to swing less way out here, less way out here. And we start to just reside in more of a balanced place. This quality of equanimity is on many of the Buddha's top list. Okay, it's one of the seven factors of enlightenment. Right? It's, it's one of the ten paramis. Right, these powers that we develop. It's one of the four Brahma-viharas, the qualities of the heart that are considered boundless. So this quality of equanimity has a boundless nature. I feel like in some ways I'm just discovering what is the depth of this quality actually. You know, it's like, oh, when, when we say something is boundless, the Brahma-viharas are boundless, and Mark's going to talk about them more tomorrow wow, what is boundless equanimity? Maybe that's what the Buddha is saying, that those who discover it can leave reaction behind when they have rested in this quality. Equanimity is the key factor in non-clinging, having a non-clinging mind. Right? It's, it's, it's this, we, we have this energy and we're resting. Right? We sort of have a calmness. Our meditation practice... Um, you know, we're, we stop reacting to our thoughts and our views and our opinions. I mean, that's really what happens on retreat, isn't it? We're just reacting to one thought after another, one memory after another, one, um, you know, story after another. Mark Twain, he said, some of the worst things in my life never even happened. Right? <laughs> Never even happened. So you see right there, our imagination is quite intense. <laughs> right? And our, and our fear, the fear, this is, a, this is something that's very interesting. We become afraid a lot when we sit on the cushion. Right? We just see that. It's not all our emotions, the visions that come. And even this fear I want to talk about because I see this as a lot as a reaction to Anything that's unknown that arises. It's like people double check. Is this okay? Is, I saw a vision of this. Is this okay? Or this energy happened. Is this, right? It's almost like anything that the ego can't catalog, anything out of what we know, right, that arises. The, the immediate response is not deep equanimity. It's fear and terror and like, what, ah, what's going on, you know? We think, this is, is this going to kill me? Or is this going to be dangerous? Right? So we deal with hope and fear almost all day long. We hope that we feel blissful. We hope that we can get something. And then we fear what we don't know or what might be happening. And we make up the stories like what Mark Twain was talking about, like what could happen, what could go wrong. Right? Has anyone had those thoughts about what could go wrong when I get home? No one's going to understand me. I'll be, you know, we can go on and on and on. I mean, the suffering is exhausting, isn't it? Like, it's so tiring. So equanimity, the more that we're able to see the emptiness of this, as we sit in meditation, and sometimes I challenge myself to this at home. Uh, so I live nearby now in a little, like, a little yogini cabin. And I just really have an altar in there right now, right? 
And I always think, okay, spring, here you're going to sit down. I wonder what is going to knock you off your seat. It's going to be something, right? Some mental image. And I, I really look for it. Like, what's going to be scary? What's going to be... And after a while, really, I just see it's just random thoughts, right? And it, it was like how he was talking about, we don't give power to them, right? That's equanimity, right? And more and more, I'm able to rest longer and longer and longer and longer, right? It's like, okay, there's letting that go. Yeah, I've seen that one. Uh, Mara's, yeah, yelling and screaming. Okay, yeah, got that one, right? Oh, this is the annihilation story. Okay, got that one. Okay, this is the past. Okay, right, I got that one. Right, more and more, it's like we sort of have this file cabinet and we've gone through these things a billion times. <laughs> right, and you're like, file that, file that. And at first you look at it, and, oh my God. And then after a while, it loses its potency. You just file it, it goes by. Pretty soon you don't even have to file. It's just like, yeah, there you go. Then You're just sitting, very calm, right? You've seen all the, con- you start to see the tricks, Right, the, 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 the mind conjures up, and this is the development of, I think, a foundation of equanimity. It's like the first stage, right, towards this really powerful, like, oh, whatever happens is okay. What if I just stay sitting? What if I just didn't believe it? How about that? Right? Would I still be okay? And it's like, oh, yeah, I will be okay. So equanimity is this ability to be able to be with whatever happens. It's a non-reactivity. And we don't learn this from living in this realm, on this planet, very much. Reactivity, right? Everyone's kind of going crazy over everything, you know? So we, we, of course, we're swimming in that. So this truly is going against the stream, right? This truly is a different way to live life, right? Non-reactivity. And, you know, one of my favorite things that I do is I collect spiritual biographies. Because I, and I have done that since I was a child. I started reading them when I was maybe in elementary school. I would read biographies about everybody. I'd go to the library. And it could have been about something very sad. Sometimes I would read about addicts or something. But I was fascinated by the personal narrative, the personal story. right? And so over the years, I've collected a lot of biographies of great masters. And... Um, reading all the things they went through, <laughs> it's kind of comforting. Don't you like when we like tell you our worst moments? Uh, like when teachers would talk about how they were humiliated, I'd be like, oh yeah, I feel, tell me more about the suffering and that. <laughs> right? Because really what we want to see is they're sitting there all great now, right? It's like, wow, you went through all that? Okay, I can do it, right? You want to hear that. Right? You, you kind of you want to know. I think one of the things that makes someone like maybe His, His Holiness, the Dalai Lama, so powerful is what He's endured. You know, what He's gone through. His enduring mind and His equanimity to hold it, to be a child. You know, nine years old, He's leading His country almost, right? He's, you know, and just so many responsibilities and this constant equanimity around all of it, and deep compassion. Equanimity has compassion. The near enemy of equanimity, and we say that term, near enemy, because each of the Brahma Viharas has something that masquerades as the quality, but it's not the quality, 
right? But we can kind of fall into the trap and like, oh, I'm really, yeah, I have that quality, but it's not quite it. It's like, no, it's, a li- it's close, right? It's, a bit, it's like corrupted a bit. And so um, the equanimity is confused often with indifference, right? Or someone says, how do I become more detached? Whenever they use that word, I go, do you mean non-attached? That's very different than detached, <laughs> right? So equanimity is connected to what's happening. You know, and sometimes you meet people like this at different times, this indifference, and um, they can, they kind of take the teachings a little bit and they maybe they, they think, oh, it's all empty, right? So they're like, who cares about the polar bears? It's all a dream or something like that. Or who cares... You know, and they get, and it's like, no, no, you know, it is a dream. And while we're here, we're part of that, right? And, and we, when we're in touch, the heart that's wise and the heart that's open is always moving to alleviate suffering, right? If there's a way that we can. And I'll talk more about that as we talk about more about the world. Because I think it's important reflecting on our, the world is inside and it's also outside. It's, it's part of this whole path. So um, it's very important to know that equanimity stems from the open heart. It stems from compassion, right? This ability to be able to hold things. Um, Thich Nhat Hanh, he, he wrote when, about the crowded refugee boats that were in Vietnam and he would say when they met with storms or pirates, Right, these huge groups of people, if everyone panicked, all would be lost. But if one person remained calm, one person remained centered to be able to negotiate, they navigated their way out. Right? One person who had equanimity wasn't reacting to the fear and terror. Right? They showed the way for everyone else to survive. Right? So it's a certain power in this kind of energy. Actually, it's like the rock, it's the light, the way through. People rely on that, right? It's like we, we say, let's not react. What's the clearest path forward, right? If everybody's reacting. And, um, and you know, I worry about that in our world to some degree. Everybody's reacting, but where are the calm, clear voices, right, that can lead through? You know, this is a really important thing. Equanimity also has wisdom in it because wisdom is grounding it because there's a very important piece to understand about the Dharma. And it was brought up earlier that everything is unfolding lawfully, right? Due to causes and conditions, nothing arises without a cause, right? So there's an intelligence to the unfolding of our life, of this planet, to the world, everything around, right? Everything is governed by this, right? It's not a random universe. Some people think that actually with the Dharma, like it's just luck or random. You know, you walk outside and something happens, it's random or this or that. Or, you know, it's like everything is unfolding based upon the seeds that we plant. It's our karma. There is karma in this, right? It's nothing to be afraid of, but it's important to understand that that what we're doing here is we're planting the seeds. You all should be very happy. You're planting the seeds of freedom right now. Right? This, is, this is, you know, for someone to be on retreat, 
in the text, the Buddha would say this person has great karma. To hear the Dharma in this life is amazing, like one in a trillion, right? Then to actually feel a connection to it, <laughs> again, that's look around on the planet, right? To feel a strong connection to it and then to practice it, right? And then to have the resources and the time and the faith to practice it is, is, is astounding. So it's... Um, it's a part of it. So equanimity helps me in my life because when things happen, I think, well, this is the lawful unfolding of things. Again, that doesn't mean I don't care about suffering or the situation or even something good that happens to me. I think, oh, this is the lawful unfolding of that, you know? It's like, okay, it's, it's arising due to causes and conditions. Birth and death, everything in between, the highs and lows, everything that is unfolding, it's lawful. The other aspect of the wisdom side of equanimity that equanimity sees deeply is impermanence, right? That everything arises and passes away. This is a very important, it's a teaching that we can't hear enough, actually. Right? It's like everything rises, everything passes. I love... Um, there's a poem that we always read on retreats. I decided not to read it because I was like, Howie and Margaret would be like, oh no, not the Naomi Shehab Nye poem, right? <laughs> Some of you might be going, what? But you can, you'll hear it if you're on the circuit long enough. You'll hear it many times. <laughs> but Naomi Shehab Nye, she's a Palestinian poet. And, and this line that I love so much out of her poem about, it's about love and about uh, kindness. She writes, um, you must go where the Indian and the white poncho lies dead by the side of the road and see that this too could be you and that he too was someone who had the breath and he carried his hopes and dreams, something like that. So it's important that we see that, right? That this too is us because when we think that we're immortal, which a lot of people do, <laughs> right? It's a habit. We really can't deal with that truth of it, right? So it's like, I'll drink wheatgrass and I'll do yoga and everyone else will die but not me. <laughs> My father actually really thinks this. He's one of like, he keeps obsessing on it. He doesn't like when I tell him that the Buddha says old age, sickness, and death. He thinks we're programmed and he tries to... Anyway, he's doing fasting and prayer and so, you know, we'll see. <laughs> if the Buddha didn't make it, I don't think he's going to, but I just cheer him up and kind of just go with that. So it's important to know that... Um, Everything is impermanent. It's to remember that. Everything's rising and passing. Everything, everything we see, the trees, nature, everything's being born and dies. If you spend a lot of time in nature, you see this. You see the cycles of life, right? Even a leaf falling from the tree, it died, right? It goes back into the earth. One something that was so green and beautiful, back into the ground, the flowers all around here, they'll be gone in a few weeks. Here you all came, here, this unique group of people, you will disperse, right? This particular setup, will, will, it's gone, right? It's, the time goes, You're, the days have gone. It's always changing, always impermanent. There's a stream of that. So letting go becomes the nature 
of someone with equanimity. Why hold on, right? It's like, well, let it all go. So this is a a funny story that uh, I've read before, but I really like it. So Roberto Di Vincenzo, he's a famous Argentine golfer. He once won a tournament, and after receiving the check and smiling for the cameras, he went to the clubhouse and prepared to leave. Sometime later, he walked alone to his car in the parking lot and was approached by a very young woman. She congratulated him on his great victory and then told him that her child was seriously ill and very near to dying, near death. DiVincenzo was touched by her story, so he took out a pen and endorsed his winning check for payment to the woman. Make some good days for the baby, the baby, he said as he pressed the check into her hand. The next week, he was having lunch in the country club when a PGA official came to his table. Some of the guys in the parking lot last week told me you met a young woman there after you won the tournament. DiVincenzo nodded, yes. Well, said the official, I have news for you. She is a phony. She's not married. She has no sick baby. She fleeced you, my friend. You mean there's no baby who is dying, said DiVincenzo? That's right. Well, that's the best news I've heard all week, said DiVincenzo. (laughs) So you might as well say that, money gone, right? (laughs) So it's like the wise, equanimous heart, right? It's, It's like, yeah, things are as they are. That's a great mantra, actually. Things are as they are. That doesn't mean we don't engage in change, agents of change, compassionate action. It means seeing that. It means knowing that we could do many things, and we don't know. Thomas Merton, the great Trappist monk, so wise, was an activist. He was once advising a younger activist. He said, do not depend on the hope of results. You may have to face the fact that your work will be apparently worthless and even achieve no results at all. It may even perhaps bring about the opposite of what you expect. As you get used to this idea, you start more and more to concentrate not on the result but on the value, the rightness of the truth, the compassion of the work itself. Right? And that's kind of how our practice is in a way. Right? right? We, like we, we sit here... We don't really get a lot of applauses when we go home, mostly, right? <laughs> you tell people, I would go on long retreats when I was young. My family would always say, when I got home, I'd go on these three-month, five-month retreats. Oh, we hope you had a nice vacation, honey. And I would say, are you kidding? I was cleaning my mind. It was brutal. I had ups and downs. and It was the hardest thing I've ever done. It's easier to stay here, right? I would say that, and they would go, okay. They would just look. <laughs> they would... But um, I get it, we get it. Uh, your sangha will understand, right, what happens here. But even this, we have to have equanimity, the highs and lows. We let it all go, right? We let it all go. So impermanence. So one of the other things that we learn on the wisdom side of equanimity is about what we consider to be obstacles or our suffering on the path, right? We think sometimes we're with experiences that are really difficult and we don't see how they're valuable yet, 
right? We don't see how maybe our childhood suffering, how is this valuable now, or the death of someone, or the betrayal, or the being, or the loss of everything, right? So we, so obstacles on the path is really important, right? Because we use them to grow, and there's a truth in this. I want to you to reflect on really deeply about life. It's a simple truth. Okay, here goes. You don't always get what you want. I'm really sorry to say that. (laughs) You don't. (laughs) And it's a betrayal to us when we don't. Right? We kind of fling ourselves on the ground. Life, we look up at the sky. You betrayed me. I wanted whatever it is of this, the that, the relationship, the, you know. It's something really interesting about that. We don't get what we want. And somebody who has equanimity can balance that. Like, oh, okay. Right? This isn't, what I want is not arising. And sometimes I've been the most thankful that I didn't get what I want. You know what I mean by that? Mm-hmm. Like you really want something and then you don't. And then you realize later, thank goodness, I never had that, right? So we're not really clear. Again, this goes to the faith. A lot of times now, I have a tremendous amount of faith, and some people might not relate to that, but I really trust every moment. is like, whatever's arising is supposed to arise. I probably drive people crazy. If it's meant to be, it'll be, right? We could put all our effort into it, and if we're supposed to go, we go. If we don't go, we don't go. You know, it's a kind of living, like, because every moment I, I have a sense that it's for me. Right? That there's an intelligence unfolding it. And it's a loving, I truly believe that it's a loving universe. Albert Einstein said that in his last few days. I've come to the conclusion this is a loving place. Right? That, the un- that this, and this experience of living is for our awakening. Life is not happening to us, it's happening for us. Right? It's an unfolding. And when you have that trust and you have that flow, all kinds of magic happens. Have you ever noticed that? Like you just let go of everything and you trust in equanimity and everything appears as it needs to appear, right? People appear, food appears, beauty appears, right? The more we get out of the way, actually, the more magical life is, right? And if something doesn't go well, you trust, right? Okay, I guess we weren't supposed to go to that place. The car broke down. Well, okay, what can we do now, right? Right? It doesn't, it's, it's not fighting with reality. It's like we, we get in alignment with whatever's, whatever it is and we trust that it's, it's for our unfolding. So there is real faith, actually, in equanimity. I think Ajahn Chah had faith, tremendous faith. That's why it, that was uncertain. Wow, okay. You know, we crash, okay. There's a certain kind of trusting with the flow of life. And I see that many great Tibetan masters, they had this. In their biographies, they had this dance of sort of testing the waters all the time, going way out on a limb and just going, okay, (laughs) right? I trust here, whatever's arising. And we don't have to take that to a place of uh, kind of silliness or something, you know? We can be rational. We can be compassionate with it, right? We don't don't act... uh, unmindfully with it. So I want to talk a little bit about um, the worldly aspect because we're on retreat here and the Buddha talked about these eight worldly winds that are always blowing. He calls them the, the winds of the world. So with equanimity, we have to deal with our inner realm, 
right? This is how do we meet our mind? Can we meet our mind with more equanimity, right? Again, this is that very high, um, it's kind of like a high bar, but we train in that. Also, equanimity, just to say, is a foundation of, of jhana, it's a foundation of concentration practice, right? Equanimity, an equanimous mind can settle, right? It's less reactivity, right? Concentration comes out of a happy, equanimous mind, right? We're able to traverse a whole other level of experience and consciousness when we have this. So it's actually another piece to our retreat life. So in the world, thinking about the worldly aspect of things, the eight worldly winds, they're always blowing. And I'm going to just give you their sets of pairs, and you'll see these. And the teaching around this is that it's the nature of change. It's impermanent. It happens to everybody. So I'll say the first pair, which is praise and blame. If you are a human being and you are born on this place, you will be praised at one time and blamed at one time, right? It's kind of like when we get over the idea that blame is happening, <laughs> we can be equanimous, like, oh yeah, this, yeah, oh, how does this feel? Okay, right, These are, this is always going on. The Buddha actually had enemies. His own cousin tried to kill him, right? So we will have our share of naysayers or... or uh, hostilities, right? We'll always be praised, we'll always be blamed. Teachers, you know, it's not always easy being a teacher because what happens sometimes is, you know, we'll have a teaching team and then maybe somebody out in the audience thinks, I don't like that teacher. And they start writing a mean note to them, right? <laughs> Teachers suffer over this, right? And they're like, oh, they hated me. or the, uh, You know, it's like praise and blame. And then they have another one. I love you. Your talk was great. Or I hated your talk. or the, It's like a whole... If you don't get over it, you won't have fun, right? It's like, it is what it is, you know? You just let go at some point. So praise and blame. The cooks also used to go through that. They used to have a little praise and blame board. Somebody would love the food, somebody hated it, right? <laughs> Luckily, the love pile was like this, and the hate pile was just like that. But still, it stung every time. And then they just said, let's practice. Let's practice with it. So what if you didn't care that you were ever blamed for anything? But if you were blamed, you took in the advice, well, what happened? Okay, maybe I did do something. You find it in your heart, right? You apologize. You make it right if you did something. Or if you didn't, you just bow to it, right? So the second one is um, success and failure. This is a big one, right? Because we can put all our marbles in our one basket and then the basket falls out, right? And then it's like, oh no, right? Success and failure, you can learn so much from that, right? Something doesn't work, it opens a doorway for what does, right? Some people's failures have been the biggest enlightenment experience ever, you know? Again, it's trusting life that even when something's difficult, it's for you. We grow through difficult things sometimes, it's not just worthless. It's like, what is this teaching me? Now when something arises, I always say, okay, what, are, what do I need to know here? What is the Dharma in this? And then it comes. Oh, it's letting go. Oh, it's some attachment. Oh, you know, it's always a lesson if you really look at your practice at school. Growing, right? Evolution it can be really, really important. I just want to read you this um, Story. So the story of the butterfly, 
A man found a cocoon of a butterfly. One day a small opening appeared. He sat and watched the butterfly for several hours as it struggled to squeeze its body through the tiny hole. Then it stopped as if it couldn't go any further. So the man decided to help the butterfly. It was on his table, its kitchen table at that point. So he took out a pair of scissors and snipped off the remaining bit of cocoon. The butterfly emerged easily, but it had a swollen body and shriveled wings. The man continued to watch it, expecting that at any minute the wings would enlarge and expand, enough to support the body. Neither happened. In fact, the butterfly spent the rest of its short life crawling around on his table. It was never able to fly. What the man in his kindness and haste did not understand is that the restricting cocoon and struggle required by the butterfly to get through the opening was a way of forcing the fluid from the body into his wings so that it would be ready for flight. Sometimes struggles are exactly what we need in our lives. Going through life with no obstacles would cripple us. We would not be as strong as we could have been. Maybe we would never even fly. So it's important that we see it as grist for the meal, all the obstacles, all the obstacles. And some of the biographies I would read, some of these masters, they would need to see their teacher and they would walk for six months. <laughs> Imagine that, right? To get one question. And by, of course, by the time they got there, it's answered. But still, it's this, this, you know, the, 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 the faith and the amount of sometimes not eating and being afraid. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is amazing, right? Life sometimes has ups and downs in it, you know, and we have to accept that. Oh, this is just difficult times. Can I be with this? These are the 10,000 joys. Can I be with that? This is another um, reading by Pema Chodron. She really is like hitting right at the points on this one. It's a Start Where You Are, A Guide to Compassionate Living is in her book. <laughs> so she says here, Life is glorious, but life is also wretched. <laughs> it's both. Appreciating the glorious inspires us, encourages us, cheers us up, gives us bigger perspective, energizes us. We feel so connected. But if that's all that's happening... We get arrogant. We start to look down on others. There's a sense of making ourselves a big deal and being really serious about it, wanting it to be like that forever. The gloriousness becomes tinged by craving and addiction. On the other hand, wretchedness, life's painful aspect, softens us up considerably. Knowing pain is a very important ingredient of being there for another person. When you're feeling a lot of grief, you can look right into someone's eyes because you feel you haven't gotten anything to lose. You're just there. The wretchedness humbles us, softens us, but only, but if we were only wretched, we would all just go down the tubes. We'd be so depressed, discouraged, and hopeless that we wouldn't have energy to eat an apple. Gloriousness and wretchedness need each other. <laughs> One inspires the other. The other softens us. They go together. That's a pretty bold statement. Wretchedness and glorious, they need each other. <laughs> but in some way, I think it's true. Some people that have too much have no humility and no kindness. Sometimes, you know, I work in urban environments, so I work in, I've always been attracted to that just from where I grew up. Um, and the, the heart that's there, 
in these very impoverished communities, I mean, you could really see somebody give a gift and it was like their last of something. It wasn't like they had a huge account and giving something was like, okay, you know, kind of easy in a way, you know. But when you have nothing else and you give it, or just these beautiful acts of, maybe I, I once had a friend and her mom, she was a single mom of five children. She was always taking in more kids, right? And they would all be sleeping in these bunk beds, like three bunk beds in one room. And it's like, well, let's bring in this baby and let's get them going. And let's, you know, it's just like the generosity and the love in the face of that. It was just really interesting. So pleasure and pain, the Buddha talked about. So we have praise and blame, we're going to get. Success and failure, right? Works, it doesn't. Pleasure and pain. How many of you have had pleasure and pain here in the body? <laughs> right? If anyone can testify, it's a yogi. Like, oh my God, today was brutal. Yeah, oh, now it's great. Oh, tingles. I like it. <laughs> or I'm open now. Or, you know, as the days go on, it gets easier. But pleasure and pain, this is part of it. This is a huge piece. It's just so interesting. Another story I want to tell is from um, Chogyam Trumpa Rinpoche, who is controversial, <laughs> to say the least, but brilliant mind. Uh, he had also, one of the things I want to encourage you is to develop a sense of humor. It seems that very equanimous people have a good sense of humor. <laughs> about things. I mean, my other teacher, Minjir Rinpoche, he laughs continuously. Even if it's something really dramatic, it's like, I don't know if we should be laughing, but then, <laughs> then it's like, what if we just let go? I guess, okay, well, might as well just start laughing. You know, it's like, it's, a, it's sort of like a healing in it. It's, it's like, oh, it's a dream. You know, we said like, wake up. You know, clap. Interesting. So um, Chogyam Trumpa Rinpoche also had a notorious, crazy sense of humor. I mean, kind of, you know, just over-the-top sense of humor. So in his biography, The Warrior King, is this, he has a story of his escape from Tibet. And he had to cross the Himalayas. And, and they were attacked. Their, their group was attacked by the Chinese military at one point. So they all had to scatter. And um, him and his attendant were basically hiding behind a bush, and the bush had no leaves on it. So they were there, and they were looking, and they, were, and they looked at each other and started, and the guards were like, right, the police. And it was so funny to them. They were like, well, if we go, we go, right? Let's just like, this is funny. They're not seeing us, and there's no leaves. And, and they were just dying laughing in the midst of what could have been the worst, you know, someone's worst fear. And they were just like, well, whatever's going to happen. There's no leaves. It's over. <laughs> Somehow they weren't seen, and that was even funnier. And they laughed and laughed about it as they escaped, you know. And I just thought, wow, that's courage, right? That's equanimity. He was prepared for whatever. They just surrendered, you know, like, if we make it, we do. So, very powerful. It's a great book to read, just if you want to get inspired. So the Buddha said, live in joy and in love even among those that hate, Live in joy in health, even among the afflicted. Live in joy and in peace, even among the troubled. Look within and be still, even among the troubled. Look within and be still, free from fear and attachment. Know the sweet joy of the way. Free of fear and attachment. Know the sweet joy of the way. 
So the last pair of these worldly, um, these worldly qualities, these winds that blow all the time, is fame and disrepute. It's kind of similar to the other ones. But you really see this in kind of Hollywood life, right? Someone's the greatest, and then they fall really hard. Like, he's kind of, and then everyone just rips them to shreds. I mean, it's bad, right? I don't really, I don't have a TV, but on the internet every now and then things slide, and it's like, this person, and they're now the hated, you know, hated one. And it's, so that could happen to us too. You know, great masters sometimes were ridiculed and thrown out and treated badly, and then people then loved them again and then hated them and then it's all a projection of of everyone's mind you know it's like okay this 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 too could happen you know so these are um the qualities of the worldly aspect and you know it doesn't mean that we don't do our work it's important to remember that with equanimity that we're always working with compassion we're always engaged, but how are we engaged? You know, if we feel motivated. I have a friend, a couple that I love dearly. They're from England, and they're, they have founded this organization in the Amazon forest. Um, it's a protection. It's called Arcana Alianza. It means protection of the Amazon. And um, they're always immersed in the oil companies and documenting pollution. And I remember um, sitting there and I was feeling really bad about this the other day. I was meditating here and I was thinking about Matthew, the founder, and just how much I loved him and his passion for the Amazon and the people and the tribes there and the community. Just the spirit of it all. And um, I started sending love to the oil executives, these companies. And then it expanded. I was sitting here. I expanded. I started sending it to all the billionaires who own all the companies. <laughs> Like, you know, they're, they're on news and these kind of, I don't know, they get projected on like Dr. Evil and, you know, they kind of have these stereotypes. And all those people who aren't seeing the interconnectedness, right? But at the same time, I have to have equanimity. You know, I have to, I can't lose center. I can do what I can and let go of the results. Even if I have to watch this whole planet, if that's what we have to be witness to is the destruction of the whole planet, okay, then that's our teaching, right? Can we be with that truth, right? Or maybe it's saved, or maybe everything is fine. Maybe, you know, who knows what's going to happen, right? But that still means that we still have equanimity around it. And yet we work. We work, we move forward. Nelson Mandela and Dr. King, they had tremendous equanimity, right? Any great being who's ever led any kind of movement has always carried... They never gave up, right? And they always had dignity and equanimity and love, right? It's like, otherwise they couldn't do it. If they were reacting, imagine, right? To every press or every person who even shouted at them or hated them, if they were too busy reacting, they would have burned out, right? Again, this quality is a non-reaction, right? Can I be with the difficult? Can I be with the beautiful inward and outward, Right? How do I relate? How do I respond to life? And we can, we can learn a lot by this practice. I know for me, it's been huge. The, t- the fatigue of reactivity, is, it's burned out in me. You know, it's not that I don't react anymore, but not like I used to. <laughs> so I used to fly off the handle. <laughs> I'm sure some of you relate to that, right? And I had temper, actually, and would go, blah. No, it's my way. I kind of think it's 
just growing up with everyone screaming and yelling all the time, you know, it's kind of got in, in me. But um, the fatigue and the practice of mindfulness and love, it's like wearing that down, right? It's like, oh, why react? Things are as they are, right? I can forgive you. I can still love you, you know? Your path is your past. Things are unfolding lawfully and always on time. How could it be otherwise, right? How could it be otherwise? So I want to end with this story. Um, It's called Two More Isles. A man observed a woman in the grocery store with a three-year-old girl in her basket. As they passed the cookie section, the little girl asked for cookies, and her mother told her no. The little girl immediately began to whine and fuss, and the mother said quietly, Now, Monica... We have just half the aisles left to go through. Don't be upset. It won't be long. Soon they came to the candy aisle, and the little girl began to shout loudly for candy. And when told she couldn't have any, began to cry. The mother said, There, there, Monica. Don't cry. Only two more aisles to go, and then we'll be checking out. When they got to the checkout stand, the little girl immediately began to clamor for gum, and then burst into a terrible tantrum upon discovering there would be no gum purchased. The mother patiently said, Monica, we'll be through this checkout stand in five minutes, and then you can go home and have a nice nap. The man followed them out to the parking lot and stopped the woman to compliment her. I couldn't help noticing how patient you were with little Monica, he began, whereupon the mother said, I'm Monica. My little girl's name is Tammy. (laughs) That's equanimity for you. (laughs) So so sometimes it's just like that, moment to moment, inner and outer, right? Whatever's going on, right? We just do our best. So let's just sit for a moment. And may our practice be for the benefit of all beings everywhere. May all beings be happy and peaceful and free. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.